So, to continue on how do we build relationship? How are we taught to construct relationship? How are we taught to create community when community exists to validate your identity and the greatest human right of all is self-expression? How, how are we taught? How do we do this? What are, we, what are the tools? What is the method? How do we think about it? And so the primary method of applying postmodernism to the world to try to create community would be called the tool of critical theory. So critical theory or applied postmodernism is the tool we are taught to use in order to critique, evaluate, and deconstruct the constructs of family, church, and state to ensure that the individual is able to self-express and receive validation. Does that make sense? There is a tool and a way of thinking. So we've been, we've, we understand the story. We understand the practices. How do we apply that to community? We use critical theory, which is just on the simplest form, applied postmodernism. It's a way of thinking and engaging in group dynamics. So we're looking at groups and we're evaluating them and say, how do we actually allow this group? What, how do we actually bring justice into this group, bring the utopian vision of a secular society into this group? We use critical theory and begin to deconstruct and critique and evaluate groups. And so what is a critical theory? Oh, well, I will. Critical theory applies the deconstruction and dismantling of post and metamodernism along with the views of a modified social Marxism to address what needs to change within a community. Okay, at its simplest, critical theory is an approach that addresses a way of, a way of the system through the use of, or misuse of power. It is not an attempt to answer a problem, but rather address a problem or reveal a problem. Because this is really important to understand. If you go to university and you begin to start thinking of critical blank studies, what you're going to do is evaluate a, a whatever that blank is and find problems. This is the art form of problematics. What you're trying to do is reveal and uncover problems. So you're criticizing whatever is on the attempt that whatever you reveal down the road may uh, reveal uh, alternative solutions. So, like critical gender studies looks at how we look at gender and says maybe the way we look at gender is, gender is causing people to feel oppressed and feel like there's power put against them. And so let's reveal all the problems of uh, dividing uh, society by their genetic gender, male and female. Let's, let's just reveal all the problems. And so what we do is we stir up problems without ever really trying to find a solution. This is part of what, what you're taught using the tool of critical theory. It's, it's really important. It seems very, like a, a po it, it seems like a posture of valor to say, let's look at all the problems. But the reality is, is we're not trying to come up with solutions. Now, I have to say this because I think sometimes people get on this bandwagon of just blasting critical theory without ever taking a compassionate approach of what's being revealed. Here's the truth. 
when we evaluate things and we find problems, a lot of times those problems really do exist, okay? So we don't just get to throw everything out and go, oh, that problem doesn't exist because it was discovered through some critical theorist. Maybe that problem did exist. Maybe that person was oppressed. Maybe that person was really hurt. And you don't get to carry an unempathetic heart that says, just because it was found in a secular way doesn't mean that it doesn't carry truth. Okay? Like, social justice advocates reveal the pain of our society. And we are called to be those that carry Christ to the pain. Now, carrying Christ doesn't mean we just carry social justice. We carry Christ himself in us, the hope of glory. But it doesn't mean that we just throw away what's being revealed. Okay? This really, really matters. Okay, I, uh, I'll say it. I mean, we've made a mockery of standing for the truth and we've made our Christianity a meme. Okay, like I think a lot of times people, like look, there's a lot of angst on this topic. And you know what the, the attitude of our culture is right now? angsty. So what do we do? How do we maintain popularity? Well, if you don't just compromise your values, you become a meme and you're sarcastic and you're angsty and you put it on Instagram and you get everyone else that's on the other side that's angsty to follow you and like you. It's really easy to grow your church right now and grow your community right now if you just start buying into political views rather than Christian views. It's really easy. You just... You just pick a side and scream about it and all of the angsty people will come and follow you. But you're not giving a solution. You're buying into an ideology of the empire. And I just, I really want to say this to you. Your Christianity cannot be reduced to a meme. I hate it. I literally hate it. It's not funny to poke fun at people that are trying their best. It's not funny to like poke at people and evaluate them and stand and throw rocks. Jesus didn't. And we think we can do it behind a computer or a screen and all of a sudden he's okay with it. Like I'm over it. I'm like, look, the pastors that buy the watches and the sneakers are gonna be judged before Jesus just like we will, okay? So you take money from people and you buy things that could be stewarded differently. I understand. We probably all have an opinion on it. You're all missionaries and could probably use a little bit more money for outreach right now. And it's offensive when you see it on people's feet. I get it. I've been there. I understand that. But they will stand before Jesus. What they don't need is you to make a meme. You're not delivering them into the kingdom of light by making a meme about it. It's not, it's not, hey, I'm just starting a conversation. Really? Over the internet and throwing a rock? I bet you're doing a great job at that. Did you lead them to Christ afterwards? No, you didn't. You just, like... There is an accuser, and he's doing a pretty good job convincing us that we should just follow in his footsteps. So what happens is, is we get passionate about this stuff, and it gets linked to political parties, and then we just use the same methods, and we get a bunch of followers, and we feel like we're doing the right thing because the favor of the Lord must be on it. And then we brand it as revival. It's not. Like, it's, it's not. And it, like, it bothers me. Obvious, like, it bothers me. My one of the, uh, Zoe's not here right now. I, uh, one of the first dates Zoe and I had, we, uh, I was, it was like our third date. We were going to this restaurant and we sat down and, uh, the night before she was serving at our, in our youth group and I was talking with the youth, stupid joke. And she goes, I just want to let you know, you told me that you were a man of God, that you built people up, but what you did behind someone's back as a joke 
was sarcastic, and that means to cut and to cut them down. So I just want to let you know that you're not being a man of your word because you can't speak, some, speak life and hope into someone and then cut them down. So what do you want to do? And I'm like, I mean, you've seen her. She's a tiny little joy check. Like, you know what I mean? But this is, but it's true. It pierced. She's like, if you want to be sarcastic and cut people down, then you're not being a man that builds people up. Pick what side you're on. What you make jokes about, you don't actually care about. It's the way we've justified dislike, not caring for people. So you want to make jokes about sexuality, it's because you don't actually know anybody or you don't care enough about them to not make fun of them behind their back. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. What you call humor really matters. Okay? And I'm also, look, I like humor. I think it's fun. It's funny. You got to laugh. I'm not telling you to be like a stoic and be like, nothing's funny. Yet. You know? Look, the truth is, all I'm saying is evaluate what you joke about. And honestly, like, I get it. Christian culture is really easy to make fun of. Um, but some of us are actually trying to reach people and get them to come to our church. So, like, let's just not make fun of all the stuff that happens in a church. Like, I don't, like, so that we can just sit around in our Christian communities and not invite anybody else into it. Like, what are we doing? Like, just what are we doing? Just, we, we what we're stewarding right now is very serious. Like your friends, your family, your communities, your neighborhood, and the nations are at hand and at stake. And I just want to love people well enough to go, like, I'm not just going to make fun of them, you know? And so when it comes to this stuff, it also means you can't just X out what people are crying. Like the cries of people are being heard right now, and we have to actually steward it, and we have to care for it. So because we can't be sure and can't create a rule or the right solution, we simply dismantle and reveal problems. So we've become professional revealers of problems. Our evangelistic method is, is being compromised by this. So, so we care about the church, but rather than working in the church or serving at the church, we write blogs about the church and how bad they do things. And we subscribe to podcasts about big rises and falls. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> Let's reveal the problem and not care for all the people that were hurt by it. You know, four interviews isn't a lot of people. Is this being recorded? Praise the Lord. Four interviews isn't, I don't know. Okay, I know. <laughs> Cut it out. I mean, um, because we can't be sure, we can't create a rule or a right solution, so simply we just constantly reveal. Jesus wants to hear your story, and he wants to heal you. He wants to heal you. Sometimes what we've done, we've lost faith. And what we've done is we've taken this tool and what we do is we commiserate rather than encourage. You need to bear each other's burdens, but there's hope. Like we need to do a better job of being like, there's hope. What is God, what is God saying? Not just what has happened or what, what, what pain have you gone through, but what is God saying? What are you gonna do about it? James Lindsay writes, a critical theory is chiefly concerned with revealing hidden biases and under-examined assumptions, usually by pointing out what have been termed problematics, which are ways in which society and the systems that it operates upon are going wrong. And it, and it uses um, this misuse of power as, in, in some ways, a modified social Marxism. People that equate critical theory with, like, it's Marxist theology or whatever it is, um, it, it's not 
true French Marx, Marxism. It's, it's uh, distorted and been kind of evolved. It would be scoffed on. But anyways, that, that doesn't really matter. The point is, is that it's a modified social Marxism, which is an approach to understanding society through the lens of power structures and systems. Okay? So how do we find problems? We look at society through the lens of power structures and systems. Because we oppose family, church, and the state, they are the most powerful structures and systems, and, and they oppress people and push people down and misuse and abuse people, which makes it pretty hard for us as people that follow Jesus because we are a part of the church. Whether you want to claim it or not, you are a part of the church. People in churches have supported you. So I, like, what, I'm a Christ follower. I don't go to a church. What, like, whatever we have to do to justify it, like, here's the reality. We're a part of the church, the body of Christ, the ecclesia of Jesus and uh, that's what we are. And so an approach to understanding society through power structures and lenses. Now, understand this. We live in an individualistic culture. The Western world is deeply individualistic. However, as an individual, you still have to live in a community. And depending on what community you're from or how you look, you are now categorized within a power structure and a system, which either makes you a good guy in, or a girl or they, and, or a bad guy, girl, or they. like, do you understand? This is, we are categorizing people now. Under, like, and that is not a joke. That is a reality. You are now, cat, like, we are individualistic, but not, it's shifting. You are part of a power structure because who you are as an individual has abused and misused power. The social binary. Society is divided into oppressed and oppressor groups. You're either one or the other. Oppression through ideology. Oppression occurs through majority power and thought. Lived experience. Personal experiences gives oppressed groups access to truth. And, and more specifically than just truth, secret, special, exclusive truth about injustice. Social justice demands the liberation of oppressed groups through the dismantling of the social structures and institutions. Um, this... This is the popular thought right now. And this is why we have to be sensitive and tender when we talk about this, is that can we just agree that people have been oppressed? Like, people have been oppressed. If you go to another nation, you'll see some pretty extreme, like go to Cambodia, you know what I'm saying? Like, there are some things that have happened. And in America, people have been oppressed. I am not, hear me clearly, as clear, how, how people have treated people in this country has oppressed them, okay? Okay, this is a reality. If you come to my neighborhood, I will show you. I will show you. Kitty corner to where our church was, there used to be KKK rallies, and, and the, this, the racist kind of agenda of my neighborhood where our church is still exists in the under, like, it still happens, okay? I am not denying that there are people that are oppressed and then there are people that are actively oppressors. I am saying that we have to be careful and we have to submit this to Jesus because we're categorizing people and I just think this tool doesn't create the community of Christ. I think Jesus has a different way of creating a community through our submission and surrender to him, which actually alleviates this. And when we look at the books like Romans and the book of Colossians, we start to see, and Ephesians, and Philippi. If we read the Bible, what we begin to see is that God has a God creates a community where people's children were murdered by other people in the room, and somehow through the letters and the epistles, we see 
God creating a community, and he's, like, he's able to overcome that. So, so we just have to believe that, that Jesus is good at leading us into community that stretches us and makes us uncomfortable, but this tool of postmodernism and metamodernism doesn't have to be the solution. It's the solution for those that do not have Christ. Now, I'm going a little fast here. This doesn't mean that you throw away some of the stories, some of the pain that has been revealed through this. Like, just because I don't adhere to this fostering the, uh, the kingdom of God, I don't believe in that social Marxism is the way forward, doesn't mean that I don't hold people to go, I've been through some stuff, man, and I'm finally getting the chance to share my story, and I want to share my, yeah. And I mean, this, there are people that have, exp- we are all in the United States, Okay. You make more than 99% of the world, even if like you're the poorest of poor here. That's the reality. There's things that we have here that no one, like that other countries do not have, okay? The reality is, is there are privileges. And there are people that have experienced a more privileged life. We don't demonize people for having privileges or opportunities in their life. It doesn't actually equal the playing field. But the reality is, is what do you do with privilege? You steward it well. Share the, you, like, take your privilege and invite people in. Take your opportunity and invite people in, but that takes a gracious orthodoxy. You're gonna have to be able to understand how to submit to the Lord and listen to his voice and, and bring him into these kind of conversations. All I'm saying is that we have to be very careful how we steward this, that this doesn't shape how we do evangelism because what it looks like if we, when, when we really tease this out, is that Christianity in and of itself is an oppressor group. First of all, Christianity is birthed out of a Jewish man hanging on a cross, okay? Not a white person. So really, like, you're gonna, be, you're gonna go back home and, like, <laughs> there's just things you're gonna experience. Like, you're colonizing the nations, you're doing this. No, I'm bringing Jesus. The man, you guys say it all the time, the man Jesus. I'm carrying the message of the man Jesus, the good news, right? Like, yeah, you're impressing people. You're changing the way that they're not free to express the way they've always wanted to express. Well, maybe they're expressing worship to an idol that will lead them to an eternal damnation. Like, I don't know. Maybe I care about that. I, like, just understand, like, just take this to the Lord. Like, let me just be offensive and be like, take it to the Lord. Allow it to challenge you. Like, just allow, I'm not saying you should be a Western democratic society. I'm saying Jesus is amazing and he died for your sins. What happens is if the church gets in bed with politics, they start embedding those politics wherever they go. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying distort Christianity into some sort of Western political scheme. I'm saying bring Jesus to people. That's what we're doing. That's what you signed up for. That's what personal experiences give oppressed groups access to truth about injustice. Actually, I would pretty much agree with that. I do think people that have gone through things can tell stories about things that could give you perspective, okay? But just because you, here's the, here's the, there's a difference between advice and authority we need to have humility and allow god to speak to us and receive advice from people okay advice can be learned authority is because you've been through it you've walked through it god walked you through it i have some authority on this because god's walked me through that does it make sense okay so i separate the categories it doesn't mean i don't listen to advice just because the person that's giving the advice hasn't actually walked through my exact situation just because someone hasn't walked through your trauma doesn't mean they can't bring jesus into your trauma and heal you from your trauma Okay, because Jesus has walked through all of the trauma, all of sin, all of shame, hung on the cross. Like, his blood, either his blood, like, 
either his blood is enough or it's not. You have to make that decision in your heart. But just because someone hasn't walked through it doesn't mean they can't walk you into the presence of God and allow you to go in the throne room and be ministered to. That's, that is the truth. We believe this. We believe, we believe this. Or the Apostle Paul has no authority to tell me about how I should steward my sexuality because he wasn't married. And he, actually, neither is Jesus. So, so this is what we believe. This is what you believe. And I'm just, I'm telling you this to allow yourself to go, that makes me uncomfortable. Why does it make me uncomfortable? Because you've been baptized in an ideology that's different than this. If you haven't been through it, you can't tell me what to do. So I actually get to live in my pain for as long as I want because my pain gives me secret abilities and stories and power over those that have oppressed me. You know what gives you power over the thing that oppresses you? The cross. The cross. It killed sin, death, and the grave. It is the all authority over everything, over all principality. He, Jesus, is seated above all things. So I fix my eyes on Jesus, not my stories of the things I've been through that you haven't been through. What happens is, is we lord our stories of pain and we linger in them because it gives us a sense of power in today's society. Whoa. And social justice demands the liberation of oppressed groups through the dismantling of social structures. So what we're doing is burning things down rather than building up the kingdom of God. And let me remind you, there's this, there's this kind of trend that's happening in the, in the Western kind of Christian sphere. And they were like, well, look at the prophets, man. They called them out. The prophets called them out. Look at the Old Testament. The prophets called them out. They burned it down. Yeah, they also called people back to Jesus and built up the church and reclaimed the rebuilding of the temple. So it kind of matters. Like, you're not in the profession of tearing down. You're in the profession of building up and building and establishing the kingdom, Okay. Call out what's broken, and then if you're not willing to work on it, then, I mean, you're going to have to take that up with the Lord. Like, I have a rule in my life. One, I'll call out what I'm going to call out in someone's life. I have to commit to work through in their life. Okay? So if I'm going to call it out, I'm going to work through it. Okay? What I'm going to call out in the church, I'm going to work through it too. So I'm committed to my local community to bring it into a beautiful thing that, I'm, that I would want to give to my children and my grandchildren. That's what I'm in for. Look, is the church broken? Yes. Has it hurt people? Yes. Has the history been tainted by misuse of power? Absolutely. If you deny that, read a book. Like the reality is, is like, yes, it's, it, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hardship. Has there been misuse of power? Absolutely. Has it justified things that are atrocious? Absolutely. Has it brought good things? Yes. Do the good things justify the bad things? No. But am I going to stay in the story long enough to bring the kingdom of God on earth as long as I live? Yes. That's what I'm here for. That's what I believe. I believe Jesus is worth establishing a church that loves him so much that people would experience it. Am I going to mess up? Yes. Like, it's, just, it's just where we're at. But this idea, what it does is it corrodes our faith. And it corrodes. Andy Bird said it yesterday that God, God doesn't have a plan B. God's plan A is the church, okay? It's the community, the body of people, believing, worshiping, declaring, building with him. So we have to understand that like, this is God's vision of relationship. Let's make it beautiful again. Let's make it wonderful. Let's make it minister the way it's called to. And I don't believe that that's through adapting the methods of a secular society. Are we okay? Yeah. <laughs> We're okay. All right. Let me All right, here's, here's what I want to do. 
I want to talk to you about what I believe a vision of relationship actually looks like that goes against the relationship that we're sold by culture. So, so, so I'm going to switch hats a little bit. This isn't about culture. I want you to get all your questions. Be prepared for tomorrow. I'm ready. I'm geared up. Let's go there. Um, I've got one more kind of punch sermon, but right now I want to just pastor for a second. We are, we are redeemed into right relationship, okay? So first and foremost, there is a relationship that takes place, and that's between you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're, we are those that carry, relationship matters, community matters. We are saved, sanctified, and sealed in a relationship with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it's intimacy. So what is intimacy? My definition of intimacy is intimacy with God is the inner workings and outer expressions of Jesus in our lives. So when I say something like we live from intimacy, what I'm saying is that there is a place, all of those moments where God interrupts, convinces me that he's Emmanuel, God with me. Does that make sense? Those little whispers, those convictions, those ideas, those things that aren't from you. God's close. That's him telling, hey, I'm close. I'm, in, I'm so close. I'm in you. And the outer expressions, every time you express the fruits of the Spirit, Every time, every time you, you, you step into expressing who Jesus is, it's, it's a moment of intimacy because it's him through you. And the secret place is the location of intimacy where we embrace the nearness of God that is ever-present and available within. So sometimes we hear preachers and they're like, come on, you just got to live out of the secret place. And you're like, what? And then, you know, what's... The, uh, it's a secret, you know, and you're like, I don't get it, you know, I feel, and I feel insecure. What, what do I mean when I say I'm living out of the secret place and I'm living out of intimacy? Secret place is the very practical location and also intentional withdrawing in, my, in myself to get alone with the Lord to allow him to speak or to live from what he's calling me to do. Does that make sense? It's not some ethereal, mystical thing that's undiscoverable. When you go on a walk and you are by yourself and you're just walking to the cafeteria or whatever and you're thinking of God, that is an intentional and internal withdrawal because his presence is near, because he's an intimate God and I'm going to live from that. That's what I mean when I say go get into the secret place. This stuff that we're talking about is challenging and I'm going to be honest with you. I think I have some good research studied conclusions, but some of this is going to be carried by you. And what it's going to demand is you going to the secret place and wrestling with conviction, challenge, and frustration, and living from intimacy. One of the passages that I'm so kind of captivated by is Jesus gets, Jesus gets baptized by John, and then it says that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and the voice of the Father says, this is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. And immediately it says that the Spirit led him into the desert. Okay? The Spirit led him into the desert where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Okay? This is where we get the concept of silence and solitude. Often Jesus withdrew. The desert being the same word as the lonely place, the, 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 the place that's withdrawn, the empty place, the desolate place, the secret place. Jesus' first act of ministry was to go out and be alone with God. And I used to think about this passage, and I used to think, man, that sounds terrible. On the last couple days of Jesus being in the desert when he's at his weakest, the devil tempted him. Like he had to go face to face with the enemy. But I heard a pastor teach this, this way and he said, actually he was at his strongest. 
because he had just lived 39 days alone with the Lord, consecrating, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. What else was he thinking on? I just saw the spirit of God just, de de just descended on me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit happening. And I'm now, th like he's thinking, he's teaching us something. This place of withdrawing where I go back and I say, I am a child of God. I am loved. I am adopted. I am cared for. I have everything that I need. I am sustained by the spirit of God that lives in me. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The alpha, the omega, the beginning and end, the creator of all things. Like, this is what we do. How do you pray unceasingly? You withdraw. Oh, here I am. I'm alone. God, what do you want to say? Secrecy, secret moments, things that don't need to be shared with you and the Lord. Words that he says to you and you alone as a son that or daughter that he is delighted in. It's in these secret moments that intimacy is shared. The best moments in a relationship are the ones that are between the two people and them alone. This is why when we adhere to like culture's desire to just post every moment, it's like, you know what ruins a moment? Like, let's take out our phone and take a picture of it. Like, let's just be here for one second. Like, I, I, like, I play music, and it's like the worst. I, I hate going to concerts where people just like want to film the concert. You know what I mean? It's like on the 4th of July, like your video of those fireworks, it, you're never going to watch that again. It's not going to be as cool as you think it is. Like, it just won't. It's like, I get it, but like, just be there. Dallas Willard says, in the practice of secrecy, we experience a continuing relationship with God, independent from the opinions of others. <sighs> I want to hear his voice for me. I want, to bring, I want to live from that place. And I want to, pure, and this is why this matters. I want to purify that relationship. I want to purify the secret place. Because relationship with God is where we experience not just that we're found, not just that we're reconciled, but that we're free. And I know you talked about this last week, but this matters. There is an eternal kingdom Jesus reigns over all things, over all soul, that you would be his ambassador, that you would carry this, that you would actually steward this internal intimacy with Jesus everywhere that you go, and that you would actually live from this place, that you would purify, which means we have to purify ourselves from the ideologies of this world, from the sinful temptations of our flesh, and from the devil and demonic forces. Okay, so, we, so we live in a purity of intimacy, and then we foster a community from this place. So then I want to blast through this, and then we can, the band, uh, not the band. If someone wants to play keys, it would be so awesome. And we'll just minister. This is the framework of relationship we see in Jesus. Intimacy in the secret place. He brings three, James, John, Peter. Three people saw the transfiguration. Three people prayed with him at the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Then he has the disciples, then we have the 72 in the upper room. Then we have the crowd. There's estimated that over 8,000 people could have listened to the Sermon on the Mount. I've been on the mountain. They did this like sonic kind of test where they could see how many people and how far they could actually hear. It's wild. Over, like 8,000 people could hear it. It's nuts. The crowd. And then we have the ends of the earth. But these are spheres of influence. And, and there is a sociologist and uh, kind of, uh, there's this number called the Dunbar number, how many people you can actually do relationship with. And it's, it's so crazy that it's basically set up the exact same frame. It's crazy how Jesus has just like the right way and then science kind of just validates it. But you have the empathy, like the ability to actually bear 12 to 15 people's burdens 
okay, to actually legitimately care for them. And then, then once you get into like this outer region, you have about 150 kind of like the ability to, to, to walk in relationship with 100. This class in and of itself is already getting to the point of like relationally hard to give yourself to this, to this class. And then the crowd, you can know 5,000 people's faces. Okay, like you can, I mean, it's like there's a reason for the crowd. There's a use of the crowd. There's a building of the crowd, but we actually have to prioritize relationship with people. Who are you giving yourself to? Who is holding you accountable? Who is going out with you? Who is supporting the mission? And how are we going to reach the ends of the earth? Do you understand? This is why relationship deeply matters, but there is a framework and an ability to walk in relationship that Jesus demonstrates. And this is the conclusion that, that, that I've come to. Formative community, you're three to 15 people. And I'm, a, I'm an ownership guy, so I'm like, write out the names. On my phone, you know, like on your iPhone, you can make like little top things. It reminds me of like MySpace, which is an ancient technology. But you can pick your people. There are people in there that I go, it reminds me of, uh, these are my community. These are the people that I'm being held accountable to. Missional gathering, this is, the commu- this is this, missional gathering. You can leverage a missional gathering to do great things and, and mighty things, raise funds, go and build things. If we all built something, we could build something so much faster than just with three people. Missional gathering really deeply matters. And then the mission, there's people that you run with and there's people that you run towards. We gotta actually do a better job of separating these things out so we can be faithful to both people because God loves everybody and we're called to go and, 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 and reach people. And the reason I wanted to share this with you is that we can talk about we can talk about culture's influence and get really 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 negative about it and be like man we're going there's no way to overcome this. But the truth is is if we stay practical with what the Bible teaches and we begin to walk in community and we purify our our inner world with Jesus, what we then express is beautiful powerful, authoritative, and healing to a world that is hurting. We don't have to ascribe to the cultural pressure of community. We don't have to compromise our morality for the sake of validation. We live for an audience of one and we purify our secret place as we give allegiance to Jesus and receive identity from him and allow that to be all that we need.